Welcome back to Russian Roulette, the podcast from the Russia and Eurasia program here at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I'm your host today, Jeff Mankoff, and in this episode of Russian Roulette, we will be welcoming Matt Rajansky, the director of the Kennan Institute at the Woodrow Wilson Center for Scholars. We're going to talk about U.S.-Russian relations, how we got to where we are, how we might get out of where we are, and prospects for the future. It was a really fun conversation, so let's get started. Thank you for being here. My, my pleasure. Thank you so much. So let's jump right in. And I'm going to ask you, what's your take on U.S.-Russia relations today? <laughs> is is, uh, nice is the, be- the beginning of the end, the end of the beginning? Is it, is it, can we go deeper? Uh, you know, my hope is that it is the end, at least, of the escalatory phase, because uh, I worry that if we keep escalating beyond this point, um, we'll de-escalate. It, oh, wait, it, it's the end of everything. <laughs> I mean, I just, I just, I just don't understand where it is that either side thinks we could be headed to. Um, uh, on the basic point of just managing the relationship, almost the kind of the day-to-day mechanics, we have eliminated so much of the toolkit, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we see illustrated recently how difficult it is for heads of state to talk to one another. We see how limited the kind of mill-mill, you know, hard security dialogue really is. Uh, and we see the consequences of that, you know, literally in terms of heavy metal and, and blood, right? We even had a case in Syria of actual Russians getting splattered on the ground by American air power. And this is this is getting very ugly, very scary, very fast. And then we have the, the diplomatic channels, mm-hmm. right, where, you know, how hard is it going to be now to get visas to get Russians over to the, uh, to the United States? And What's the theory for how do you get out of this, right? I mean, it, you can't just say, okay, we're not going to do this, right? Like there has to be some political right. calculation for what a better end state is and what steps do you take to right. get there. Well, and I think also both sides seem to want a certain amount of capitulation. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I this, this is a thing that has struck me watching this unfold and talking to both Russians and Americans is there seems to be this unwillingness to accept that the other guy is not going to say, oh, gosh, I'm so sorry, you were right. Right. To accept that the end state, whatever it's going to be, the end of the confrontation is going to have to be negotiated, which is going to require concessions on both sides. I, I completely agree. That, so there are, there are two... Um, ways in which that conceptual problem gets operationalized. One is that there really are no ground rules. And by that, I do not mean geopolitical ground rules. I don't mean lines on a map. This is our zone. This is your zone. No, that's not the point. We do live in a 21st century world. It's, It's fluid. It's different. I mean ground rules about, okay, do we have embassies for the purpose of talking to one another and facilitating certain types of basic exchanges? Evidently or, not. Or do we have them, as in the Middle Ages, as hostages? hostages. Right? Yeah. I mean, it's a basic ground rule. It's a basic understanding. We had this understanding with the Soviet Union. Yes, there were periodic spy scandals and expulsions, but you didn't, you know, kick 700 people out of the embassy, 60 people out of the embassy, closing consulates left and right. I mean, this is, this is a mess, and it's because we don't have basic ground rules about why do we have the institutions and channels and processes that we have. And the same thing could go for the arms control agreements Mm -hmm. that we have and, you know, open skies and OSC and all those things. We're not using them the way they're intended to be used. And we look at them potentially as either hostages or leverage or so on. That's kind of principle problem number one. Mm -hmm. Problem number two is exactly what you said, Olya. Where are we going, right? If we are headed for a win, please tell me what that win looks like. Because if that win looks in the mirror to the other guy like a loss, 
then he's clearly headed in a different direction. And the only way you get there is by beating him and rolling mm-hmm. over him. And I'm not actually sure either side is capable of doing that. At least Ronald Reagan said mm-hmm. that was not possible. And it's or not no, a good idea. Yeah, or at the very least at a cost that either side would regard as being exactly. even minimally acceptable. Well, I mean, historically forcing others to capitulate does not lead to good long-term <laughs> results. <laughs> it, it's not It's not ultimately a good strategy if what you expect is a negotiated settlement. If I think part of the problem is in um, – and, and I'm nowhere near the first to have said this, but you know, our collective psychology uh, here in the developed democratic West is kind of stuck in like 1937 where we're all prepared at any given moment to see the inevitability of conflict with the sort of rising Hitlerian power. Uh, the problem is we're not actually prepared to fight World War II over and over and over again. So, yeah, well, see, I, I think that the collective psychology or whatever you want to call it is really more in about 1991, which is that we're alone as the great power on the top of the heap and others will do what we want them to do because clearly we're bigger and stronger than they are. Well, there's there are a number of things going on here, right? I mean, I think you're right with the 1991. I might push it forward a little bit after we actually started doing things. I, I do think there's a terror uh, in the American policy establishment of being deterred from anything, anything at all. But then there's the Russian side of this, right? Because they're playing this game too. And I don't know that they're prepping to fight World War II over again, but it's something close to that, I think, even yeah. more so than here. Well, the, the Russian um, popular entertainment media certainly makes it sound like it's always World War II. Yeah, I mean, you know, I say this explicitly about our side mm-hmm. of the equation. I think, I think on the Russian side, you have a, a whole different psychosis that's developed, which is very much about domestic politics, to, you know, narrative, uh, identity formation. You know, Putin has finally answered Yeltsin's famously unanswered question of what is the Russian national idea, what's the national project, and it's very clearly to be to live in past glory while at the same time ignoring every problem you can possibly ignore, both at home and internationally. That's the Russian yeah. national idea. That's the Russian national I mean, idea, th- and it works is... incredibly well for Vladimir Putin. You know, within the confines of his system. Yeah. I mean, this sounds actually exactly like Svetlana Alexeyevich wrote the book Secondhand Time. I mean, that's exactly what she meant by secondhand time, right? right? Like we're sort of wanting to live in somebody else's experience in order to not have to deal with the problems that we we have today. Exactly. I mean, I guess arguably this this sort of is similar to what I was getting at with the West wanting to sort of see this 1937, 1939 moment over and over because it exempts us from having to actually do the hard analysis and the hard choices. Like, you know, is this actually worth a is this is this a conflict that is actually worth going to the mat over in a 21st century world where mm-hmm. doing that means right. risking nuclear war so look at how hard that is with Iran with mm-hmm. North Korea not to mention Russia and NATO but actually I think we have even experienced you know back to the 1990s uh, as as you guys were talking about we've experienced versions of this problem with with even intervention questions right do we or don't we go in at the first signs of genocide or violence sure. or civil war and all of these different conflicts, it has become increasingly easy and, and necessary, I think, for politicians to just dodge that question because it's such a fraught question. Mm-hmm. You sort of can't win. Even if you do the morally right thing, you know it's going to be a disaster. Which you... is not morally right. Right, exactly. Responsibility right? to protect only makes sense if you can actually protect somebody. Exactly. Right. And these are these are hard, politically destructive questions. And the answer when it comes to Russia has been to depict this kind of, well, 
we will win, we will prevail, we have to stay strong um, without actually preparing the American people for the sort of conflict that that implies. It's interesting you made the comparison with um, humanitarian interventions because I think the point that you were making, and I'd agree with it, is to a significant degree we have been deterred from those kind of interventions by the experience of the last two decades. We have? Uh, well, we, certainly in Syria we were. Yeah. Um, Could have been a little more deterred. I think we Would were pretty helped. well deterred. Um, it, it was right to say that, that the Obama administration was deterred. Yeah. Absolutely. The Obama administration tried to stay out of it, but nonetheless got dragged in far more than it wanted to be. So I would say that we were not sufficiently deterred. Well, but, I mean, this is quibbling. Yeah. But, but my point is that, you know, that because is something that's in the living memory of most not only American leaders, but most Americans, is something that they're reluctant to, increasingly reluctant to get bogged down in, um, including the Trump administration, right? Like this idea of, of nation building and humanitarian intervention doesn't seem to be a high priority for them. Just like a new Vietnam syndrome. The, the, the reset of the political mentality that happened with the victory, quote unquote, in the Cold War has sort of run out and we're back to something like a Vietnam syndrome. I'm not sure but, we are though yeah, because but, we keep doing these things nonetheless. Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll see, right? We'll see if we do another yeah. one of them. But I was going to say, but, right, when we, it comes to the U.S. and Russia, that's not something that that kind of great power competition and conflict isn't something that most Americans have in their lived experience. And so I'm not sure the extent to which that same kind of deterrence mindset applies. So, so you guys know I have like a I have a theory on this that has become kind of a part of my stock lecture on the subject to anyone who will listen. Mm. And therefore, you must share it now. Therefore, I'm yeah. share. Well, I mean, what, what, all, what better what better opportunity? It, it's it's that we lack rational fear. Mm -hmm. So in the early Cold War, you know, other than a few I think very insightful folks like George Kennan, most people actually you know, on the sort of afterglow of the World War II victory also lacked rational fear. And they thought, you know, heck, you know, like George Patton, right? Let me at them, Soviets, we're, you know, we're going to win. And then pretty quickly as the various crises of the, of the ramping up early Cold War period of the 50s into the 60s set in, right, probably culminating with the Cuban Missile Crisis, we stared down the barrel of just how dangerous this thing could be and how close mm -hmm. we were to actual total annihilation. And we gained rational fear. Right, and we did duck and cover drills, and we woke up. At I'm least sure how rational people. those are. Well, but here's the thing, right? So there's a difference between between panic, right? So the McCarthyist era, for example, is about panic, not about rational fear. Rational fear is people wake up every morning and they ask themselves a simple question: How to make today not the day, right? Not the day when we screw right. up and mm -hmm. and the world ends. And I think we have plenty of panic, and we have plenty of a certain kind of fear that's instrumentalized. But we don't have the rational fear that got us from 1962 to, let's say, 1975, to the Helsinki Final Act. As the, the progression of kind of pragmatic, it's not about deal-making for its own sake, and it's not about concessions, but it is about the recognition that there isn't a best alternative to a negotiated outcome. I, th I think that makes a lot of sense. Um... I also think we seem to have forgotten what we're risking. And when I look at the nuclear posture review, when I listen to American strategists talk about these things, they don't like the idea that if you start a war with Russia, it could escalate to a nuclear war and we could all die. They're trying to walk their way out of it. There, mm -hmm. Surely there's a way to keep this conflict conventional. If you can't keep it conventional, you can keep the nuclear use very limited. We you can, can build li missile defense. We can limit escalation, right? This is the idea. Right. Where what gave us the rational fear 
facts starting in the, I mean, these are debates we had in Absolutely. the 60s. We came out of them with the rational fear that we can't limit escalation, therefore yes. we should limit the risk by not having these wars. Yes. We're back in the 60s trying yeah. to figure out how to limit escalation. And, and there are two really huge problems with that. One is uh, it's self-fulfilling, mm -hmm. which is as we take the kinds of steps that erode the basic fabric of this relationship, we have less and less understanding of their reality and the mm -hmm. sorts of things, yeah. the, the way they think about the world, the sorts of yeah. things they're likely to do and the reasons they're likely to do them. And so it's easier for us actually to cook up ideas that mm -hmm. for the small handful of us who still talk to Russians and go to Russians so just, just seem nutty. They just seem like they're not going to work. Uh, and, and the other and that problem, operates on both sides. That's a bilateral problem. Correct. Yes, exactly. And the, and the other problem, of course, it, that's right, is that the, I was going to say the Russians are unleashed by this, right? They are, in effect, less and less constrained the less and less fabric there is to the relationship, the less and less we are having, you know, again, not meetings of the minds where, where we agree about things, but mm -hmm. where we understand the terms of our engagement. Yeah. So you kind of cut them loose. Well, who knows what they're prepared right. to do? Right. And who knows what we think they're prepared to do? And that's where you get miscommunications of the kind that led to the Cuban Missile Crisis or July 1914 or, you know, any of these great tragedies. I mean, I take a certain amount of comfort in the fact that, for instance, the deaths of those Wagner contractors in Syria, both sides immediately went into full, there is nothing to see here yeah. mode. Yeah. We do not want this to escalate. And I think it does speak to our recognition that it's dangerous. You, d you don't want it to get that far. I think um, it was a Russian colleague who said that if there's a real risk, they'll tamp it down. It's if there's not a real risk that, that the rhetoric is allowed to get hysterical. And, the, and who decides when well, there is a yeah. real risk? This is the problem. And this you gets to be, the can point, you always get this right? Yeah, this gets to the point Matt was making about losing the channels of communication mm -hmm. where you don't have ways of communicating mutual risk perceptions. And so yeah. things that exactly. both sides would like not to escalate have the potential to escalate. And, and this is especially problematic in third countries. I mean, look, we understand because we mirror image pretty routinely that like if we were to do something nasty in Russia, like it would be an enormous problem. And the Russians similarly understand they do it in the United States. Okay, I think they kind of get why like mucking around in American elections is really yeah. dangerous well, by I was now. Say. Except they did. <laughs> Except they did. But I think they've been burned. They've learned that lesson. I think that, you know, they didn't understand American like domestic, like democratic politics. But they clearly didn't understand that trying to knock someone off on a street in the UK would be an enormous problem for Americans and for a bunch of other Western allies. That I think is this third country problem we we just don't have a clue the way that Russians think about the other countries in which they're engaged, whether it's the post-Soviet space or Europe or the Middle yeah. East. I think we we think either in, in some kind of strange retread of Cold War terms, which is very easy to reject because they don't have anywhere near the resources or ideology they had back then, or we just don't think about it at all. We're like, wait, why is Russia suddenly there? Latin America, what is Russia doing there? So yeah, well, this gets back to the 1991 problem too, right? We expect that we don't face pure competitors. Um, we're used to a world in which we don't always get what we want, but there's nobody who's going to sit down and fight us as an equal to deny us what we well, want. Well, exactly. This is the fear of deterrence. But I think there's a flip side to this, right? On the one hand, they understand us well enough that they can do Facebook ad buys. They can hire companies that understand yes. marketing. They, you know, they figured out perhaps better than American political parties how to influence politics. Maybe, maybe, maybe not. We don't know. Assistance. Right. Well, basically, that you hire ad companies, which is a thing that perhaps should be obvious but isn't before. Yeah. But okay, so they can do that. 
On the other hand, they misread how Americans will respond to that. They misread what happens when you try to murder a former agent. What do we misread about them? That is the question. I have been thinking about this a lot lately. This is where a little bit of knowledge is dangerous. That's exactly what they had. They had a little bit of knowledge about some of the details Okay, some people would say they had a lot of knowledge. They had a lot of data, mm-hmm. but they had a little bit of knowledge yeah. about the way American politics works. Yeah. And they really missed the big picture, just completely, utterly missed it. And they're paying the price for that mm-hmm. now. What do we misunderstand about Russia, aside from almost everything? Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, we have we have a little bit of knowledge and a fair amount of data about Russian security. Oh, you know this portfolio better than anybody. I mean, we get some of the details about what their systems are capable of, what they're not. We even have a little bit of a window into some of what you might call their doctrinal Mm -hmm. thinking. We have zero concept of how they apply that in the big picture to their worldview. What are they really prepared to do? How far are they prepared to go? What are they prepared to pay in any given case? It's even hard, frankly, sometimes for those of us who pay close attention to this to place the needle. Exactly where is the needle? In other words, how far Mm -hmm. will they go in a given conflict? And by the way, that's why you need to talk to them right. because they'll tell you. They're not hiding this information. No, it's well, changing. Okay. Yeah, I, th- I, I think that's, that's right. Well, it's circumstantial, right? right? It's sensitive to what's so going on. So what Russia would do six years ago is different from what Russia will do today. And, and vice so versa. You, so you need to have these continuing conversations. And I completely agree with you. This is what we lose if we shut down uh, shut down the channels of communication. And mm-hmm. also if in the channels of communication, one of the things that's been my hobby horse lately is if you keep having the same conversations you've had for 25 years, convinced that you're finally going to get your view on missile defense across right. to the other guy, right. you're wasting everybody's time. Right. Yeah. If right. you can move on from there and ask some questions that right. might tell you what's going to happen next in Syria, right. maybe you're being useful. Yeah. But I think this point about changing interests and changing lines is important too. You know, Because things that we would have taken for granted a couple of years ago when we had better communication – not necessarily true anymore. Ukraine, for example, like we were, I think, taken completely by surprise by the idea that Russia would decide to go into Donbass and, you know, maybe less so Crimea over a trade agreement with the EU. Uh, Or similarly, the way that the West responded to knocking off a spy in in Salisbury. I mean, this is something that's happened before, right? Mm -hmm. So why suddenly this time should it morph into this gigantic international crisis? And I think that absence of facilities for communication, particularly in times when the relationship is bad, means that those kind of mistakes, miscalculations, misreadings exactly. are going to be even right. more likely. This, this has also been one of my stock uh, kind of obsessions, if you will, in, in conversation and lecture and so on. And that's we build institutions and we build them for a reason. So, so most recently we had a bilateral presidential commission, mm-hmm. which had two dozen working groups, each one of which and I was, I was told by a senior official at the time, I was like, so, you know, what's the idea of these, given that I actually wrote a whole paper about it. You know, we had the gore chernomir Commission, mm-hmm. and we had Schultz-Shivert-Nazi, and we had all this stuff, right, for decades. He said, well, you know, now we're in the 21st century, and so, you know, the point is for, for officials to be able to exchange their email addresses and phone numbers, and so, so there'd be direct contact in the portfolio areas where there should be direct contact. So what do we do as soon as the crisis starts? Mm-hmm. We kill the commission, and we cut the phone lines, and we forbid our mm-hmm. officials from having contact with their officials. Do we only want contact in good times when we agree with each other? Because 
If so, I can just tell you what those kind of have you ever have you ever had a good conversation with a government official? It's the it's the hollowest thing <laughs> you could ever imagine. It's a, we're very happy to see you and happy that you exist and thank you so much. <laughs> and that's the conversation. And this was frank right. and open. In, in bad times, that's when you have serious conversations. This, um, Kadri Leek uh, mm-hmm. has yeah. made this point. And we need to stop looking for good conversations. You know, everybody's looking to have a summit meeting that has like what you call host gifts at the mm-hmm. beginning and then like a good Lots press conference at the end. No, you need to have a summit meeting, which is like a hardcore negotiation about the stuff that we disagree about mm-hmm. and the crises that might be coming. You need Khrushchev banging important. his shoe. Well, I don't know if we need I, a shoe banging, but but no, I mean maybe what you need is a is like a a productive and serious version of the Khrushchev Kennedy Vienna meeting, where like we can see a storm coming, we'd better talk about it. That'd be a good summit from my perspective. So, do you think we have the right people in place in Moscow and Washington <laughs> to have that kind of summit? Look, you are never going to get you know the perfect dream team uh, on any portfolio issue in government, and and the notion of getting it on Russia right now is is pretty far fetched because honestly, it's pretty radioactive. Yeah. Uh, for anybody who thinks they have a future, you know, in in, in either place. That said, um, I I think you can do a productive summit even now. When when this information came out that the president was you know asking or suggesting to Putin that we do a summit meeting, I mean, my first reaction was. How is that really news? Uh, I mean, he he said we need to talk about saving the arms control regime. Mm. So, well, okay, how do you do that if you don't have a summit meeting? I mean, in other words, if you're the president, it's called a summit if you meet with the other president. Um, arms control should be item number one on the agenda because it should always be item number one on the agenda. It's the thing that keeps us breathing, like, and that's a big win. <laughs> so I didn't think it was huge news. And and second, you know, it's it's probably not politically possible right now now. But you should never rule these things out. And actually, my frustration with the Russian side for for dropping this little bit of information weirdly, you know, 10 days after they did a pretty detailed press release is, wait a second, guys, are you trying to kill the possibility of a summit? Because it kind of feels like that. Why would you want to do that? You know, a, a summit is a good thing for Putin. It makes him look good domestically. But it's also just a good thing for both countries to be talking to each other, even and maybe especially when we disagree. I mean, it is odd that you get, A, such disparate takes every time the two of them talk, and then you get more information that comes out over time, like we missed a point in writing mm-hmm. up the, the conversation. Yeah. Well, I, I think that's actually some of it is just you know, poor staff work because, you know, like Matt was saying, the people who you'd want in these jobs for a variety of reasons are not in them. Maybe. I mean, I also wonder if they didn't initially think, okay, they'll work out the terms of the meeting and, you know, get it scheduled. And then after the the expulsions, Moscow thought, okay, we need to get something on the agenda to prove that we do want a better relationship. Oh, by the way. But, you know, at this point, I'm trying to second guess people right. and well, that's I, not I a comfortable some of it position. Too is just like there's this the importance of the symbolism of a summit meeting. I mean, you see this in the discussion of whether there's going to be a U.S.-North Korea summit meeting. Um, the existence of the summit itself in some ways is almost taking the place of whatever the substance of the agreements that might be negotiated in that kind of summit. And that's it, – it's sort of cart before horse kind of issue. And I think you have that problem with Russia too. Then you have those expectations that Matt Yes, yeah, you raise about. the expectations in a way that it may not be – there may not be a way of meeting, and then in some ways you end up with a, a failed summit meeting, and maybe you're worse off than you were before. I, I, I actually don't think the problem. You know, my, my point in in Russia being politically radioactive is 
that if you wanted to pull other people from government or from private life into a Russia issue, you're not going to get them. I think the Russia team is, I mean, it was actually one of the first ones to come together. You know, Europe is the only assistant secretary that's that's currently filled uh, and confirmed at the State Department. I think we have the wherewithal to pull off a summit is what I'm trying to say. Right. What you're not going to get is a huge investment of political capital where you're going to be willing to trade off other portfolios yeah. in government to get a big Russia issue done. So where do we think this fits in a historical perspective, right? We talk about the Americans being back in the 30s or the 90s or where we are, but U.S.-Russian relations also seem to kind of follow cycles. What, what's Is this just another cycle and we'll somehow claw our way out of it eventually? Uh, you know, I think either we will claw our way out of this or we'll all die, <laughs> um, which is the closest I get to optimism these days. Uh, you don't think muddling through is a possibility? No, I mean, that's Some of us claw, may live. Clawing, clawing our way out is like, you know, it's not going to be to a bright and beautiful future. It's going to be to muddling through. And, and, and no, I'm very much, and I've, I've written this, I'm very much of the school that says that some of the differences, in fact, I think some of the principal differences that we have with Russia are not solved by a change in government, even in Russia, yeah. which is one of many reasons why that should not actually be on our list of goals. Right. Right? That is not a you. valid mm-hmm. policy yes. goal, that, yeah. like change, you know, government in Russia solves all of our problems. And, and, and I think in this, Olya, we disagree with a number of our colleagues yes. who, who genuinely lay not just fault. Fault is a moral question, but, but kind of operational responsibility for all the problems we have right now just with sort of the decisions Putin's making in right, the Right, that it's Putin, it's not Russia. You know, it's a combination it, of things. Exactly. So, so let's say And we, it also absolves you of responsibility for doing anything as long as Putin's in power. Oh, Putin's exactly. irredeemable. What could we possibly yeah. do? And, and so actually I think, you know, the, the cyclical aspect of where we are right now is if we can first bring to a halt the downward spiral, uh, which w- we have to do because really, I mean, this thing can get really, really, really bad. We have been in really dark places and I'm starting to feel like we're in one again and that's that's really terrible. Um, not just because I feel that way but because of the people who will suffer as a result. Uh, so so we, we bring the current downward cycle uh, to a halt simply by concluding that it is not in our mutual interest to continue with the tit for tat. I mean, wh- what is – it's not changing anybody's mind. Okay, that's step one. Step two is not even the long term of where are we headed. Step two is just we have now a whole new list of urgent low-hanging fruit. Remember that the biggest elements of the Reset Agenda success were not the brilliant long-term vision of the Reset Agenda. After all, Prague, zero nukes, went nowhere. Well, it went. I mean, it yeah. didn't. It was abandoned even within the administration that that came out with it. Even though nominally, I guess the Russians also said they were committed to it. The long-term vision was was pretty much useless. It was the list of urgent, low-hanging fruit that they made progress on. So a specific arms control deal, NDN for Afghanistan, you know, counter-narcotics cooperation, you know, and on and on. Creating the institutions that they then killed. Um, you know, we have a list like that again. Right. And, it, and it's got Iran and North Korea and Syria and Ukraine. And like, you know, we're, we're going to have to deal with this stuff. Let's get back to dealing with that. So we do those two things and I'm perfectly prepared to sacrifice, you know, all of my long term dreams that the United States and Russia could actually cooperate in like further, bigger, more effective ways. Well, it's interesting you raised the reset because, you know, the narrative in Russia was that the reset was extremely one sided because all of the things that you listed well, arms control should be mutually beneficial, but there was a perception that, you know, Russia was kind of 
conceding something to the U.S. And then NDN, support for Iran sanctions, all of these things were viewed as being very much in the U.S. interest. And what does Russia get out of it? Well, support for their accession to the WTO, but even that, not particularly. I don't know. I mean, I would say right now with the U.S. uh, potentially getting out of the Iran deal, I think Russia is realizing just how good the Iran deal is for everyone, including Russia. Um, yeah, no, no, no. But the, the reset piece of this was Russian support for the round of sanctions. Right, but that's what, to, but that what is what yeah. leads to the deal, right? right? But it was Russia, you know, making agreeing to go along with sanctions that it didn't want to go along to. There, there is nothing as as a uh, father of young children. I can tell you, there is nothing quite like threatening to take something away that reminds someone of the value of that <laughs> thing. Which is actually a very Russian approach to negotiations. Absolutely right. <laughs> I think that's so, you know, perhaps we're being smart, but only if there's room for maneuver. In which And we're only smart if we follow it up. Well, and if we take the Iran deal away, Russia may be the least of our problems. Well, the trick is to threaten, not to yes. take away. <laughs> Look, at the end of the day, uh, I don't think anyone in Russia is seriously planning like a major new escalation. I even think, I have no evidence for this, but I even think the Skripal thing, as I said, was a misread of just Mm -hmm. how bad, there may have been an operational screw up there on top of things with just it being a sloppy Mm -hmm. operation, but it was a misread of just how bad it could get for them with us to do a hit in the UK. Well, they've done hits in the UK before, right? So Yeah, that's right. And it hasn't gotten as bad as it got. But here's the problem is they don't have to intentionally escalate for this to escalate. They don't even have to do anything. All we have to do is discover a thing they did two years ago that we missed the first time around and you get all of this again. I mean, the same stories come up at, you know, if it shows up in a Mueller indictment, the exact same thing that we've known for months, it triggers a demand for more sanctions because, well, we haven't talked about it in several months. So now that we're talking about it, we must punish the Russians again. Well, and not only that, but, you know, with the Mueller report, Mueller report, there's the American domestic political context to all of this. And there is resistance on the Hill, among the you know establishment, whatever you want to call it, to any steps that this particular White House right. is, is going to make towards Russia. This is not a White House that can make concessions, which means it's on Russia to make concessions. And Russia hates to make concessions unless it gets something very clear in exchange. And this is how we end up in our current spiral. Yeah, and this is where I wonder if the Russians seriously even want a summit meeting. Like, do they even want to have the conversation that so many times Putin has said he wants to have? Uh, if they're if they're dropping information like they did recently, saying, you know, well, Trump asked for a summit mm-hmm. meeting, knowing the American political environment, as they by now must, is going to create, you know, so much resistance to that. Mm-hmm. It makes me think they actually don't want it to happen, or they want to make trouble for Trump. Mm-hmm. Right. Either way, that is a very bad sign. Look, I have said from a very early stage in all of this that if Donald Trump is uh, somehow to end his presidency early by whatever mechanism that might happen, the Russians can, compl- you know, can point fingers about the failures of American democracy and legitimacy and so forth. And I'm not sure they would be that that opposed to this, particularly now that Trump has not managed to fulfill all the hopes that they had for him when he first was yeah, elected. Yeah, well, except that if the vehicle by which a Trump presidency ends early uh, is manufactured in Russia, 
um, whatever comes next is going to be, I would assume, very hard line in terms of its approach to Moscow. I'm not 100% certain of that because whatever comes next will have a lot more room for maneuver than Trump does. I'm, I'm imagining what a, you know, liberal left presidency's uh, administration's Russia policy is going to be at this point. And, it, and it's actually sort of an imponderable because on the one hand, you have Democrats who are still very, very angry about what they think happened, the mm -hmm. election that was stolen from them by the Russians, right. whatever the they, narrative is. They blame the Russians. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's that's resulted in the most hawkish Democrats on Russia mm -hmm. I have ever heard you know, in my whole career as a Russianist. On the other hand, right, there are still Democrats, foreign policy, serious foreign policy Democrats out there arguing for engagement because that's mm -hmm. that's literally what they do. That is the definition of being a Democrat on foreign policy. So and then a Republican policy. I mean, look, uh, basically, we have seen most of the Republican foreign policy establishment out you know, publicly on this issue, either attacking the administration or as part of the administration. So we kind of know what that looks like. And it's similarly split. So it right. just depends on who it is. Right, right. So I don't, you know, right. maybe the Russians want to roll the dice again, yeah. but good luck to but them. But if it's a specifically Russia-related issue that, you know, leads to an early end to this administration, I think that's going to have political legacies that go well beyond this administration. Oh, I don't will. think we're it going will. to go back to pre-2016. We won't, though pre-2016 wasn't that great either. The Russians have not, just for the record, right, the Russians have not liked any American administration by the time it leaves office. Yeah, sure. Well, One term or two terms. This is the cycles. They, this, the cycles are the Russians becoming right. disenchanted with the Americans, yeah. even as the Americans become disenchanted, because yeah. they come in, as with Middle East, they all, you know, American presidents come in, convinced that they can solve Israel-Palestine and mm. get along with Russia. Yeah. It, it's just a question of how long it takes them to be disillusioned of both of those. Russians tend to get excited about Republican presidents. Uh, they are apprehensive about Democratic presidents. They are sometimes pleasantly surprised by the Democrats very briefly, <laughs> but then they sour on them because they don't deliver as much as they hoped. And they are usually very quickly disappointed by the Republicans. Yeah, well, I think That's they, a very quick analysis. Yeah. I haven't really run the data, but I, I bet it's right. <laughs> well, I think what that points to is that our problems with Russia and Russia's problems with us are not easily solvable. I think they're strategic and geopolitical and, you know, having a different administration in power in either Washington or Moscow is not going to magically fix the no. problem. You know, for a trifecta, let me let me come to, and I actually, I end a lot of lectures on this, you know, the third kind of stock point that I think is incredibly important on the whole problem of U.S.-Russia relations, and this is Kennan, right? Kennan's message was fundamentally about who we are and what we're trying to do. So for those who believe that the problem resides primarily with Putin or in the Kremlin or in the decisions that Russians make and they have to just unleash their inner American, look, those <laughs> folks are just wrong. I, 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 I don't think that's going to happen under any circumstances. But there is a problem in the distance between what we think American life and the West should be, is, should stand for, what it actually is, and what Russians are prepared to accept. And, and those two things are getting farther and farther and farther away. I think if we're very clear about what it is that we are, what we stand for, the sort of life that we want to create for our citizens, that is something that historically was very attractive to Soviet people mm -hmm. and is still very attractive to Russians. The problem is they see more and more in what we are and what we do that is the worst of the systems that they have lived with and the things that they mm -hmm. have hated. And so they attack those things as vulnerabilities. And then they look to the elements of the 
the Putin system, right? The historical memory, the Russian pride, glorification, getting up off your knees and say, those things are great. So they therefore are sort of filtering their own system in a really positive way and ours in a really negative way. So you're saying democracy promotion begins at home? Democracy promotion sure. begins with solving problems. That was George Kennan's message, right? That's what the Marshall Plan was about. We solved problems for ourselves, and then we helped our allies and friends solve problems. And at the end of the day, the Soviets and their East European satellites sort of looked over the wall when they were able to do so, and they were like, wow, that's pretty good stuff. We'd like yeah. to be a part of it. So we've got some work to do. Yeah. Well, on that uh, happy but not entirely an optimistic note, uh, I'd like to thank you for joining us. This thank you, guys. A, this, this is really great. fantastic. Okay, that is it for our show today. Thank you again for joining us. We have a link to Matt's bio and recent publications in the show notes. If you haven't done so already, please do consider subscribing to Russian Roulette on iTunes, where you can leave us a rating and a review as well. And for those of you who are not on iTunes, you can check us out uh, and subscribe on either Google Play or SoundCloud. Keep listening and keep spreading the word. And also, uh, keep sending us your mailbag questions to rep at csis.org with the words Russian Roulette in the subject line. We're going to do another mailbag segment here soon, and we hope to have questions from you. You can also follow the program on Twitter at CSIS Russia. You can follow me at Dr. J. Mankoff, and you can follow Olya at Olya Oliker. And of course, uh, thank you once again to everyone who works so hard to make the podcast happen every two weeks. That includes our research assistant, program coordinator, and producer, Cyrus Newland, our intern, Claire Hafner, and the whole CSIS external relations and iLab team. Thank you again for listening. Until next time, signing out. <laughs>